You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, good, good morning, guys. Um, before I uh, kind of dive into God's Word here, let me, let me tell you a little bit about kind of where we're at as a, a church plant. Sometimes people ask me, what's the difference between a, a church and a church plant, and besides maybe 50 or 100 people, uh, it's, it's that we don't actually have Sunday services quite yet, which frees me up to come share with you this morning. And, and part of the DNA that we are embedding into our church is that we would gather on Sundays for worship. At that point, we'll start being an, an actual church. We'll have graduated from church plant to church, but also that we would scatter for mission throughout the week. So uh, how we want to do that is through what we call missional community groups. So think of a Bible study, but a little bit more than a Bible study, not just for the purpose of information to, to help us know the Bible better, but also to, to obey it, right? To be obedient and to, to be in community with each other. So, so we say that, we call that scattering for mission in these missional community groups. And currently we have two of those now. So one was meeting in, in our home on Sunday nights. We've kind of moved that to the city mission. Uh, right now we, we meet uh, Sunday evenings at the city mission. And then the, the second group that we just recently started meets actually at Honest Weight Food Co-op off of Everett Road. And uh, we just, we had an opportunity to go in there. They have a little education room that we use. And we just, we love that. I was spending a lot of time there uh, doing work from their little cafe and having a lot of conversations with people. There's a lot of alternate religion and a lot of uh, alternative spirituality there. And I've had a lot of great opportunities to share the gospel with folks at the food co-op. So we love that the idea of being a church that meets in a place where there are a lot of people that don't know Jesus, don't know about him, and have opportunities to, to rub shoulders with them. And, uh, and that's been gaining a little traction. We've only really met there twice so far, and uh, we meet every other week there on, on Friday nights at 7 and hope to, to see that grow. So once we, our, our goal is hopefully to end 2019 with four official community groups. So we're hoping to multiply two more times, uh, or I guess just once. If we have two, we'll be four. I'm not good at math. That's why I got into ministry. Um, <laughs> But hopefully we hope to end with, with four missional community groups. And, uh, and so we'll, we'll, we'll spend that time together in the, in the Word and, and we'll worship the Lord. We'll also uh, use that to develop community and care for one another, to obey those one another's that you see in Scripture, to love one another and to carry one another's burdens and things like that. And then the last piece, we kind of do mission and multiplication. So we, that's why we hope to multiply those and live on mission as we interact there. So some folks that have come to that group have said, can we bring some snacks? And, and I've actually said, that's a great idea. I love that heart. But actually, as a way to be a good neighbor, let's, let's hold off on snacks. And actually, if you want to eat something, you can buy from the, the co-op because they're letting us use the space for free. That way we can be good neighbors to them and kind of show them the love of Christ by, uh, you know, being patrons of their, their business and having op- opportunities to get to know them and interact with them. So, so that's kind of the hope to keep multiplying until once we have, people ask, when are you going to launch? I try to kind of push back on that question and say, who? Like who? It's, it's when we have the right people will launch. So when we, when we get 30, 35 people that are committed, own our vision, we'll, we'll hopefully start looking at places to start doing preview services and have Sunday morning services. Once we have a, a, a core group committed to our vision, a church is called Engage Albany, Engage Church Albany. And uh, if you know anybody in the city that's, you know, maybe not plugged into a church, looking for a church, or, uh, you know, I'd love to, to meet with, with anyone, you can follow us on Instagram or e- email me, engagealbany at gmail.com if you have any, any uh, thoughts you could share with me or any people that might be interested. So, so that's kind of where we're at. I'll, throughout this message, I'll, I'll share a little bit more of our, our vision as well, but that's kind of where we're at in the life of a, a, our plant. You know, we're not quite 
crawling where maybe a, a baby about to roll over onto its belly. So, um, All right, so if you would open your Bible with me to John chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen as well. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll get into there. As, you, as you're kind of finding that, I'll, I'll kind of lead in with a little illustration. When I was a younger, aspiring to be in ministry, I, I met this older pastor who I remember him telling me that he'd been in ministry 30 or 40 years or something, and that in all that time he had actually never done a wedding service for anybody. And I remember thinking, that just sitting kind of weird with me, why, why would you not do a wedding service? That seems like a, a fun opportunity to have. And, uh, and I'd already done, a, I think, one at this point in my, my ministry, even as somebody who, who wasn't in a, a formal pastoral role yet. And, and so he had told me, you know, I, I, don't, I didn't get into ministry to do weddings, I got into the, to ministry to preach the gospel. And it was a, a few months after having this interaction with this man that I, uh, a couple that my wife and I had known and kind of, kind of helped disciple a little bit, had asked me if I would be willing to do a destination wedding for them in Mexico. And it was a, a great answer to prayer that I had had. When I, when I had come to Christ at the age of 19 as a former atheist, uh, I'd, I'd ended up walking away from a punk band I played in at the time that had uh, big aspirations of touring Europe. And I remember thinking, God, if you would just, uh, you know, you don't promise in your word that you're going to bring me anywhere crazy, but I would love if I was able to go farther preaching the gospel than I ever did playing in a punk band. And so it didn't occur to me until I was sitting on the beach of Mexico that the farthest we'd ever went in our band was maybe like Pennsylvania or something. <laughs> but, uh, but I was sitting on the, on the beach in, in Mexico, and then people started pulling up chairs, uh, you know, not invited to the wedding, but, you know, it's kind of open on the beach. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, God is answering this prayer right now. It didn't even occur to me that, uh, you know, by trying to follow him, he's brought me to Mexico. What a, what a great and kind God we serve. He didn't, he didn't owe that to me, but he, he, he answered that prayer positively for me. And then I realized as I was speaking to this couple, the wedding ceremony, the wedding message I was giving them came out of Scripture. It was, in fact, the gospel. And these strangers were hearing this on the beach. And so I just thought, this older pastor, how, how could he miss that? How, how foolish to look at scripture and see what it says about, about marriage and about weddings and, and think that those things would be contrary, that a, a, a wedding ceremony and the gospel were somehow not compatible or were not the same thing if, if, you're, if you're not doing it correctly, I guess you would come to that conclusion. So uh, what more joyous events can we attend on earth than weddings? Ephesians 5 says that a man would leave his mother and his father and cleave to his wife, and that this mystery is profound, and it refers to Jesus and the church. That Jesus would leave his father, leave paradise next to his father in heaven to come to earth to redeem and save sinful humanity. That is the gospel, and, and marriage is a reflection of that. Perhaps the, the greatest reflection of that we get on earth. So weddings are one of these great reflections of heaven that we, we get here on earth. And again, they are these joyous occasions. Jesus came to make our joy complete. He says that in John chapter 15. Paul would write in the letter of Romans that the kingdom of God is a matter of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then you guys probably know about the fruit of the Spirit. We have love, joy, again joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And then the psalmist would talk about in God's presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. You see the theme here of joy. I think that's maybe one of the big takeaways we get from weddings is we see, we see joy. It's a joyous celebration. So with all this emphasis on joy, let's look at John chapter 2 here and, uh, 
and that joy that's found in the mystery that is revealed at a wedding. So let me read that here for you now, the first 11 verses. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. If I could just... uh, pray real quick before we kind of unpack this. Uh, Father, we just thank you for your word, that it is trustworthy, it is uh, complete, it is sufficient to lead us into godliness, to uh, take people that do not know you and reveal the truth of your character and your person, that we would not just be drawn to know about you, God, but to know you intimately through Jesus, who came and manifested his glory, as we just read here, at a wedding. We thank you that he is a God that enters into our celebration, enters into our joy. He's not afraid of fun. He's not afraid of laughter, but he comes and celebrates, rejoices with us. We just pray that we would find that joy as we get ready to head into Easter Sunday. Just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So John records these events. Curiously, they're not contained in any of the other three Gospels. We don't know why necessarily, but maybe you would remember in the Passion narrative where Jesus is on the cross, one of, the, one of my favorite parts in Scripture, he, he looks at his mother Mary and he says, woman, behold your son. And he looks at John and says, behold your mother. So he kind of entrusted John, the author of this gospel, to care for his mother in, in her final years. So what, a, what an intimate, wonderful relationship we see there between Jesus and this apostle John. And so... Maybe, now the, the place where this, this miracle happens at the wedding in Cana, it's before he had actually called all 12 of his disciples. It's likely when they, the disciples come with him, there's maybe five or six of them at this point. So not all of them necessarily would have known about it yet, and maybe this is one that maybe John was there or Mary told him later in his life, and it was one that he kept kind of dear to his own heart, and he shares it here. Also, it's interesting that uh, John never refers to Mary by her name in the scripture. He always calls her the mother of Jesus, which is interesting, maybe because of that closeness of relationship. Additionally, it's, it's likely that Jesus' father had already passed during this passage because he isn't mentioned in this event, and, and Mary is there. And given her role, she was probably pretty close to this family. So with that kind of little uh, just details out of the way, there are really four things I, I want us to focus on in this text. So the first is uh, the wedding. So we have the wedding, that's kind of the big, the big event, the setting. And then we have the wine, which is 
kind of the, the thrust of the miracle here. And then we have the, the witnesses who respond in worship. We'll see the, the result in the witnesses of his first miracle is it's that they worship him. And then uh, finally, I want to I kind of end with some application. I call it while we wait. So the, uh, the W's help me to remember, so I just use all W's. So, so uh, diving in, the backdrop against which Jesus performs his first miracle is this wedding feast at, at Cana. Now, it happens in this obscure town, Cana of Galilee. You don't read about Cana very much in scripture. It's mentioned maybe a couple other times. And if you were to, to go through history books, it's actually not mentioned much in history either. But it was a real place. There was a, a historian, not a, not a Christian, a guy named Josephus, who, who, rec, who references the resurrection of Christ and his followers, but yet wasn't a follower of Christ. He was actually a, a Jewish man in the first century, but he wrote a lot of uh, historical accounts of the first century. And it's known that he lived in Cana of Galilee for a little while. But apart from that, and apart from the few times it's mentioned in scripture, you won't read much of Cana of Galilee in history. So it's this obscure town, not a lot known about it. And Jesus' mother is already there. Probably it was a, a close friend or a relative of hers. And Jesus and his disciples are also invited, and they show up at Cana. This couple is also obscure. They're never named, and, and they're likely poor. The reason why we can, we can know that they're probably poor is that they ran out of wine, right? So it was expected that when you had a wedding, you would accommodate for all of the guests for several days. These, these celebrations went on for sometimes a week or more. So the fact that they ran out of wine indicates that they probably didn't have quite enough money. They were trying to see if they could get by, and, and they sadly weren't able to. It's interesting insight that I think we can get from that idea is that Jesus brings these disciples. Maybe, maybe they were invited or maybe they just kind of tagged along. But I like to, to challenge people often in, in the church when it comes to hospitality. I think in our Western mindset, often we think that entertaining guests is the same as hospitality, right? My wife and I joke about this sometimes. If somebody drops by unexpectedly, you feel a little caught off guard, right? Oh, man, we got three kids. They're all five and under, so toys are everywhere. Don't come in my house, man. Doesn't look good. But at the same time, that's not really hospitality. That's entertaining, right? If we want to we wanna create the appearance that we can accommodate people, even though that's maybe not what our life looks like the other six days of the week, but we want to we wanna clean up and make it seem like they, they, uh, they're entering into this place of peace and cleanliness. But I think, I think that's entertaining. We want to kind of impress them, right? We want to create this facade. But the reality is most of the time our house does not look very clean. And I think hospitality is saying the door is always open. Just something I like to, to point out in terms of as you, as you follow Christ, how do you love your neighbors? Is it, is it possible that you could have a, a door open policy where they would recognize, hey, I, this man's a Christian or this woman's a Christian on our street and their door is always open to us and they don't pretend we know it might be a mess in there, but, but we allow them to come in. I've noticed from, from some folks that I've, I've gotten to know pretty well who are uh, Christians from lower economic levels that they talk about having opportunities where their mom would just adopt a neighbor informally, just, hey, this, this neighbor, they don't have a lot, and we don't have a lot, but there's always enough for, for an extra mouth. And they kind of, they show this hospitality above and beyond often what some of us in more middle class or upper class circles do because they just, they love people genuinely like that, and 
They're willing to allow others to intrude, so to speak, without trying to entertain them. And I think we see a glimpse of that here in this, this wedding where Jesus brings these other disciples. They may or may not have been invited, but this couple doesn't mind having a couple extra people there. Kind of a value of relationships over, uh, over stuff. So they're invited to this wedding feast of this poor couple. And Jesus, Jesus chooses this obscure town to do his first miracle. Nothing Jesus does is by accident. Cana, again, not mentioned much in, in Bible or in history, and yet Jesus chooses it. And we're still talking about it today. Now, I think uh, a, a town like Gilderland or a, a city like Albany, if you've been reading the news at all lately, probably not mentioned very much in, in world news. We jokingly call Albany Smallbany, not quite 100,000 people. And uh, apart from some of the, the abortion laws that were passed there recently that were very concerning to many people, didn't make news very often. But I would, I would argue that God has good plans, big plans for a city like Albany, for a place like Gilderland that he wants to see people saved and come to himself there, that he wants to, to see a movement of people growing for him. I'd even argue that what's going on in the nursery back there, in the children's classrooms, is actually more important than what's happening in World News or in the Capitol building at Albany, because that's going to be written in the history book of eternity that God knows and has determined, whereas this world and its ways are fading away. Jesus wants to join those who are happy to have him and make room for him at their events, like this wedding. They made room for him at, at their table. This time he brings five or six disciples with him. And I think there's something important to note about him showing up. It's that Jesus is not afraid to celebrate. I, so, I sometimes meet a lot of people, both inside and outside the church, that think the Christian life is really just a way to end all of our fun and all of our celebration. There was a, a Christian group in history from three or four hundred years ago that it was a, kind of a stereotype of them. People said their hope was, or their fear was rather, that there was someone somewhere having fun and it was their mission to end it. Right? Have you guys ever, maybe, maybe at some point in your life you had gotten that impression about Christianity or about God, that, that his hope was to, to find things in your life that you enjoyed and to take them away from you? Now, I understand that those outside the church might have that impression, right? Because uh, as, a, as Christians, our hope is to find our deepest joys in the person of Christ, right? He doesn't, he doesn't want to end our fun, but he wants our fun to be in proper proportion. Maybe you've, maybe you've experienced that, where something that brought you a lot of pleasure, over time, that pleasure started to dwindle. Because as creatures created in God's image, we long for something infinite for an infinite God. And when we turn to finite things, their joy and their pleasure eventually starts to tarnish. But God doesn't want to, to take his good gifts away from us. He just wants us to worship him and not worship the gift. So I understand those outside the church who don't know Jesus, how they would be, how they would be challenged by our, our convictions, right? Things like uh, keeping sex within marriage can be challenging to those outside of the church or, or, uh, abstaining from drunkenness and trying to live lives of self-control. That can be challenging to those outside the church, but, but for those of us inside the church, how do, we, how do we engage our neighbors in such a way as to show them 
man, it's not that, it's not that I reject that stuff because it's bad. All good gifts come from God. It's just that I want to enjoy it in the proper, in the proper priority. I want God to be first and, and I'll enjoy his gifts, but not in, in such a way that I put them above him. And to, to woo them to see that Christ is the author of all joy. If you're a, a Christian, you don't smile or laugh often. You're doing Jesus the wrong way. See, it's, the Christian life is not a funeral march because we're promised eternal life. So, so it's a march towards eternal joy and, and life in Christ. What does it do to our witness if we give that impression to our neighbors that God is just this, this giant killjoy? We shouldn't be killjoys either. So, so Jesus is invited to this wedding. And the last point I kind of want to mention about the, the wedding aspect of it is that this couple is unnamed and seemingly unimportant, but they're starting their marriage off right. They've invited Jesus into their marriage. I think there's some application there as well. It's that blessed is the couple that invites Jesus into their marriage. So my wife and I in a in a week, uh, three days actually, we'll celebrate our 10-year anniversary. So, uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, so it's been 10 years, and and I and I can stand here and tell you, straight-eyed, that we've never once fought. That was a joke. Sorry, I have a dry sense of humor. Um, of of course, we fought, as as all of you know. And um, you know, sometimes when during the honeymoon phase, you think that marriage is going to to be always just the deepest joy, but there's also challenges and trials that come along that as well. So, so I'd just like to, to ask you, how, how have you invited Jesus into your marriage and how is that working for you? Or have you found maybe somehow you've, you have a compartmentalized marriage where Jesus is over here and you guys are over here and somehow he doesn't, he doesn't bring you closer? In every marriage you will experience sin, but it's what you do with that sin that, that makes the difference. So when you have two sinners entering a marriage, you get more sin. It's like a sin sandwich. And, um, and when, it, when it separates you, you will either try to hide it, as Adam and Eve did in the garden, or you will figure out a way to deal with it, to bring it to the cross. And if you, if maybe you can't come towards each other during times of trial and sin, but if you can go towards Jesus, you can meet each other back there. Now, I know speaking to a room of people that I don't know very well, I could be getting very close to, to some folks. So, um, so I don't take that lightly. In the, in the 10 years my wife and I have been married, probably the biggest challenge and one of the most uh, heartbreaking things that we've experienced is seeing people that we knew early on uh, start getting divorced. And, and 10 years in, you start seeing that people that you thought would make it forever who, who somehow were not able to hold that together. So, so if that's maybe you, if you're in a, a place where you, there's challenges and trials in your marriage, I would encourage you to talk to your pastors here. They love you. They would, they would want to help you with that. I know it, it won't be easy. It will be difficult, but Jesus is there with you. He loves you. He, he wants to, to see you overcome that and work through it. Bring it to the cross, or there are ways that will keep bringing you further and further apart. So now let's talk about the wine. This problem arises at this wedding when the wine runs out. It's problematic for several reasons. First off, the, the party stops. Uh, the, the rabbis of that time used to say that where there is no wine, there is no joy. So wine in this, in this wedding is, a, is kind of a, a symbol for joy. Now, before you get, you get too excited, to be sure, the Bible says drunkenness is a sin. So 
Jesus is not condoning drunkenness. And also, it's, it's agreed upon by just about all scholars that the wine of that time was much less uh, potent than of these days. So, so it, was a, it was a symbol for joy. It was just something that at, the, at that time, think about wine, you, you can't have it overnight. It's different than grape juice. You ha- there's a process that goes involved in it. So it's not something that, it's something a little bit more valuable. So, so when this wine runs out, it creates this, it creates this problem for them in that the wedding celebration, it's a symbol that the joy has run out in this wedding. And then additionally, it's a bit of a, a social faux pas in that it's, it's embarrassing for this couple. They, they have all these people come out of town to come to this wedding. They make these accommodations and they run out. Could you imagine if you start off your wedding and you're, you're that couple of, oh man, they ran out of food at their wedding. And that's, that's how you're known as you start your, your, your marriage. That would be embarrassing, right? And, a, and then finally, because they're, they're impoverished, they're, they're a poorer couple, we believe, they would start their marriage on a bad foot in terms of, some people tend to think that there was actually a fine you could incur for running out of some kind of accommodations at a wedding and that people came from out of town, they're, they're planning on having, having themselves taken care of on your dime, and then when you run out, some people believe that there was actually a fine you could receive for that, which would be another terrible burden for this couple who likely doesn't have that much money in the first place. So that's the, the problem with the wine. And then Jesus' mother kind of springs into action. He has this interaction. He says to her, she, she says to him rather, they have no wine. And then Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? You know, like you talk to your mom. Um, I'm, I love this interaction. It's fascinating. Now, that seems odd to us in 21st century America, but I, I think there's a little bit of cultural context that makes it a little different. We know Jesus was without sin. He's not, he's not being flippant or mean to his mom when he calls her that. However, I think there is a little bit of an edge to it, though, in, in the fact that he calls her woman and not mother, right? It's an interesting, it's an interesting change in the, the relational dynamic there. And I think what he's doing is this. As her son... This is the first time he's going to do a miracle. It's the first time someone's going to see him do that. It's the beginning of his public ministry. Now, Mary had been told by angels there was something special about this this child, about her son. And at this point, when he says woman, I think what he's actually kind of doing, it's subtle, but I think he's kind of placing himself out from under her care and, and starting to proclaim, I came to do my father's will. Not Joseph, my earthly stepfather, or earthly uh, uh foster father, I guess you could call him, um, but my father in heaven. I came to do his will, and, and I'm not going to do what people ask of me just because they ask it. So he kind of distances himself a little bit from his mother to proclaim, I'm doing my father's will. This is when my public ministry will start. Additionally, I think it's interesting to see that Mary then, she's not offended, but she recognizes he's got this situation under control. She's not She's not equal to Jesus. She, she has faith in her son as, as things develop, but unlike some other false teachings teach, she's not, a, she's not divine. She's not someone we should worship. We see in her obedience to obey Jesus here that she is a, a woman, a great example of faith. We could follow in her example, but a, not a good object of faith. We shouldn't pray to her or worship her. So I think Jesus is kind of saying, hey, I'll answer I'll answer, I'll do something to this, but it's not because you asked, it's because it's in, in line with my Father's will. There's a, a lesson for us there in prayer. 
I think, in terms of if we come to Jesus with requests, sometimes he'll answer them favorably if they're in line with his Father's will, with our Heavenly Father's will. But sometimes he might say no, or, or he might say later or wait. And I think, I think that's why we have a beautiful example of Mary as an, as an example of faith. She, she accommodates, she, she adjusts to do what Jesus wants in this situation, to hand it over to his will and how he wants to handle it. So how about you in, in prayer? Have you ever asked God or pleaded with him for something and then not received it? And, and rather than be at peace with that, you grow bitter or, or upset? Or are you uh, okay to receive and obey what, what Jesus does do and what he does reveal to you? So Jesus fascinatingly responds, and he says, his hour has not yet come. Now, I want to come back to that. So let's just put a little bookmark in that. We'll come back to that. But, but yet he solves this issue of the wine in a most unexpected way. He makes this miracle happen. Note, though, that Jesus never touches or says anything special. He uses the servants to perform this miracle. Now, if you were to survey the entire Old Testament, all the prophets in the Old Testament, you'd never see a miracle like that. They always do something. But Jesus just, he just speaks. Go do this thing with these pots, with these jars. And then a miracle happens. Something special, something different about him. He doesn't, there's no abracadabra. He's the only one in scripture to do so. He uses what some people have called the ordinary means in that these servants really do the work. And what they do is not remarkable. They fill some pots with water. How many of you, when you first became a Christian, thought it was going to be nothing but nonstop miracles and signs, stuff like that? Maybe, maybe we uh, sometimes get that impression. The book of Acts is filled with a lot of amazing things, but, but church history, since the book of Acts, not so much. It seems far and few between there are these really remarkable things that happen. So often what happens is very ordinary. People pray and people preach the word of God. And somehow God does the miraculous thing. He, he takes people that were once his enemies, as Ephesians 2 says, and changes them into his children. He adopts them through the preaching of the word. Romans says it's, it's by the word that faith comes. You hear through the word and you believe through faith. There's nothing real remarkable about that, right? Sometimes we try to share our faith with those that don't, don't yet trust in Christ, and we find ourselves, man, it's, I wish it was, it was more amazing, more spectacular, but for centuries, God has been working through the simple, ordinary means of praying and reading the Bible, preaching the Bible to others. Not unlike these servants just taking these clay pots and filling them with water, and then Jesus does this amazing, miraculous thing. The results are left to him. God shows up through these simple, ordinary means. And then the amount. Something like 120 or 180 gallons of wine that Jesus miraculously makes happen. Again, that's the symbol for joy, right? If we're, if we're pursuing Christ, there's no bottom to the joy we can find in him. There's always more joy to be found. His grace cannot be exhausted. And then the quality. This man says, you save the best wine till last. That's unusual, right? It's unusual. The world tends to give us its best first and then save the worst for last. 
That's the devil's way as well, right? Sin isn't enjoyable at first, right? Can we agree on that? It sounds provocative, but you wouldn't do it if it wasn't, wasn't some fun. But then on the other side, you start to see, man, this is, this is not fulfilling. It does not make me happy. It does not give me joy. But, but Jesus, he asks us, pick up your cross, follow me. That's not, that's not awesome in the, begin, in the beginning, but on the other side of the cross is the crown and joy forevermore. Jesus brings the better wine to this wedding. He doesn't bring the off-brand Mr. Pepper. He brings the Dr. Pepper, the real stuff. <laughs> he's not encouraging drunkenness here, but he's encouraging joy. He saves the party by bringing this better wine. And it goes on. The couple is saved from social embarrassment and possibly even a fine. And again, Jesus comes and restores joy to this situation that otherwise would end on a sad note. How can we follow him in this regard? To our, our neighbors, those that know, don't know Christ, how can we bring better things than the world could offer? Something that we're trying to think through as a, a young church plant gathering a group of people is how do we be good neighbors? How do we love others? So we're hoping to do some block parties this summer. Uh, hoping to serve in some of the various events Albany puts on over the summer, just give water, simple things like that, opportunities to get to know our neighbors, for them to see, oh, this church, man, they, they tried to love us. We can't quite figure them out. You know, we thought it was going to be judgment, but instead it's love, it's grace. And then Jesus' glory is revealed at this wedding. It says it was manifested, and his disciples believed in him. The, that's the third part, the witnesses' worship. One commentator on this said, After 30 years in obscurity, he lifted up the veil that he had thrown over his divinity in becoming flesh and revealed something of his almighty power and godhood. I think that's a good way of saying it. The, the picture of Jesus became a little more clear. He was more than just a man. See, our faith is one of revelation. Jesus was revealing his true nature and power here. And who did he reveal it to? Not a, not a giant mass of people, just a small crowd at a wedding. And not even everybody at that wedding. Because the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It would grow gradually, smallly. The first miracle caused his disciples to worship him. Now, now they'd already left everything to follow him, so it wasn't like, it wasn't like the first time they believed in him. But it just was confirming they'd made the right choice. Have you experienced that in the Christian life? You start following Jesus, and then maybe you have doubts at times, but then something will happen that confirms, often through reading the Word of God, that I made the right choice. I can continue to place my trust in Him. I can continue to believe Him. The fact that it says here that it's His first sign is also important, and that there are false gospels that say Jesus performed miracles as a child, and I just love how the Word of God continues to prove itself, right? So, so we, can't, we can't trust these false Gospels because they contradict what we read here, that his first sign was that a miracle in Cana. So, so it's an easy way just to, just to encourage and equip you if you ever interact with somebody. This happens to me at, with folks at uh, the food co-op I mentioned, they'll, people that believe all kinds of crazy things, but they'll talk about, have you ever read the Gospel of Thomas? It says Jesus performed these crazy miracles as a child. And you can say, well, no, because John says... His first miracle was at a wedding. And so his glory is displayed, worship is paid, 
But then I think there's also a promise made in this text as well. So let me now go back to what I said I'd bookmark, and that is that he says to Mary, his hour had not yet come. If you just turn uh, 10 more chapters ahead in your Bible to John chapter 12, if not, it'll be up on the screen. If you don't have one, that's fine. In John chapter 12, I think we start to get a glimpse into the hour that had not yet come that Jesus was referring to. In chapter 12, he says in verse 23, and Jesus answered them, the glory, uh, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. John spends about one third of his gospel on the last couple days of Jesus' life leading into the crucifixion. Here Jesus is telling his disciples the whole reason he came was that he would die for them. See, he was glorified among a small group at a wedding in Cana, but be clear, the main reason he came was to give his life. It wasn't just to save a couple at a wedding from social embarrassment. Jesus was a great teacher. Yes, we should follow his teachings, but the main reason he came was to die for us, to pay for the sins that we couldn't pay for. The hour he really came for was not simply saving this couple from an embarrassment. See, he would turn water into wine, but to save the souls of many by shedding his blood on, the behalf, on our behalf and offering living water for us to drink. That's the main reason he came. In 27, verse 27 of this John chapter 12, he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. That was the main purpose that Jesus came for. See, this text in John chapter 2, this hour, it looks forward to the hour and foreshadows how he would save us sinners like you and like me. Now, if you think back to the Old Testament, Moses' first plague, first sign he does to Pharaoh to set God's people free then, was a sign of judgment. He would turn water into blood. That was Moses' first sign, the first plague. But Jesus' first sign is one of grace and not judgment. He would turn water into wine, looking forward to that time when wine would be a symbol of his blood that he would use to cleanse us from all sin. Which leads me to ask you, have you trusted in Christ? See, all of us prior to trusting in Christ, we have a lot in common with these stone jars in this, in this scene. They were for Jewish religious purification. They were used for uh, this act of superstition, really. See, if, uh, if you could go to Mark 7, actually, here real quick. Thank you. This gives us some insight into what they used these jars for. The Pharisees saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, 
You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. The point Jesus is getting at is that this tradition was empty. It was a man-made thing. It was just to put on an act, to, to pretend, to put on a show as if we were not sinful inside and didn't need to be forgiven, as if we could impress God by our outward works. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've been putting on a religious act for God, thinking, if I do this, God will be happy. If I do just enough good, it will outdo the bad, the sin that I've done. But in the next chapter, John chapter 3, Jesus would interact with Nicodemus and tell him he must be born again. He must be born again. See, that's a miraculous thing. Only God can do that, to, to take somebody who is, uh, who is a sinner and have them be born again to new life, to place their faith and trust, their faith and trust in Christ. See, unless God fills you with his spirit, any religious ceremony or act that you do will leave you just as empty and bankrupt as these stone pots. So you might look nice on the outside, but it's, it's nothing special, nothing miraculous about it. But if you recognize your sin, if you recognize your need for God, if you cry out to him to give you life, if you accept Christ's death on the cross in your behalf, he's faithful to answer. So my last point I call, while we wait. It was no accident that Jesus did his first miracle at a wedding. If you would uh, pray for our church plant, we call it Engage Albany. And that's because we want to engage people in conversation about Jesus, engage people with the gospel in hopes that they might believe and trust in him and become his disciple. One of my favorite hymns is one called Come Thou Fount. There's a line in that that says, Jesus sought me when a stranger. I was a, a 19-year-old atheist not necessarily looking for Jesus in any of the right places when all of a sudden I was convicted of my sin and saw my need for him. We want to engage others in this great gospel story that God is telling. You guys are a part of that here. We're all part of God's big church, right? I think what's the most important thing about a church is not what makes it unique, but what it has in common with the church of the last 2,000 years. We want to bring the better wine to our neighbors who are lost without Christ. What is that story that God is telling? It starts at a wedding in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. He takes man and woman, he unites them together, officiates that first wedding. Jesus' sign, his first sign, also at a wedding, a time of joy. And if you were to turn to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 19 talks about the wedding supper of the Lamb, which is where we're heading, where we will, we will see him face to face and we will, we will eat and be merry with him at a wedding supper. The bride at that supper is the church. It's the church that he bought with his own blood. We are, we are engaged to be reunited to this great God, even as an unfaithful bride that we often are. So, so see our, our joy. See the joy we will have in heading towards that day. Do you ever think about that? See, the world, the world has joy that is fleeting. They, they recognize that they don't have the joy that we have if we know Christ. For those that, that don't ever put their, their faith in, in Christ, this earth is actually the closest they will ever get to eternal joy, to eternal life, to, to heaven. But for those of us that know Christ, this earth is actually the closest we will ever be to hell. So while we wait, while we're waiting to be cleansed from all sin and see him face to face, our job is to invite everyone else that we can, 
to be filled with joy that comes from Christ. We know where we're going. People are desperate for joy in this world. Wine is a symbol of joy in Scripture. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Invite others to find joy as well. This world's wine is fleeting, but not the wine of the Lord, which is joy and pleasures forevermore. Have you drunk from that well? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you would not leave us lost in sin, that ever since that time that Adam sinned in a garden, you have had a plan to to redeem and to rescue us, to bring us back to you. We thank you that we can have joy in knowing you. Would you continue to cleanse us from sin that clings so closely, God, to, to give us a sour taste for things that are not pleasing to you, but help us to see that joy that comes from you. Jesus, we thank you for shedding your blood on the cross to pay for our sins as we uh, celebrate today, as we sing out to you and, and get ready to celebrate Easter next Sunday, the day that we celebrate your resurrection from the dead, God, that, that you saved us and cleansed us with your blood and that we, we worship a risen Messiah who came to rescue us and that we would have joy and that joy would be contagious to our lost friends and neighbors. Help us to follow you today and throughout the week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Visit us on Sundays at 10 a.m. or online at riveralbany.com.